Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The U.S. men's national team is set to compete in Qatar in the 2022 World Cup in just a few weeks. In order to discuss it, we are bringing on a man who was once compared to Pele in a Mary-Kate Nashie movie. He is American soccer icon Alexi Lalas. Alexi, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, thank you. That's a great introduction. Uh, it's true. It it, uh, it was written, and you know Hollywood takes liberties out there. So I'll take it. Not a problem. It was fun. <laughs> Alexi, let's start off. I guess I, I kind of want to use this interview a, as a uh, reflection on the entire cycle. So let's start off at the beginning. The beginning, uh, there was a ton of excitement about this group, um, deemed as the most talented group that we would ever take to a World Cup. Uh, as we sit a, a few days before the World Cup, do you think that that is still fair? Do you think that that was never fair to begin with? Where do you sit with that? Oh, I think it's very fair. Um, you know, look, like you said, uh, I'm less than a week before I head over with uh, our Fox family to Qatar to broadcast this thing. And, you know, it's an understatement to say that we are excited uh, and that, you know, the American soccer community in America at large is excited about this for a number of reasons, not the least of which is what you are talking about here, where it's it's not a perception because it is a reality in terms of the quality of talent and the depth of talent that exists in this team. Now, we'll only see the 26 ultimately, but there's a whole bigger pool of good players. I think the question and, and the really interesting, fascinating question is, you know, how good are these players, especially relative to the past? Um, we've had wonderful, incredible world-class players in the past. I think the difference between this group is the opportunities and the pathways that they have been afforded. And look, I don't begrudge them that at all. As a matter of fact, I take incredible pride that everybody has worked so hard to give them such better things, let's, let's say, on and off the field. But with that comes higher expectations. And I think that's where both the excitement, the anticipation, and like I said, the expectation comes that, you know, with more comes a higher expectation of you doing more. And these, you know, this group that we're going to see in Qatar, many of them uh, have been, uh, you know, in an incubator and in a warm, uh, supportive cocoon, if you will, of soccer from a very early age by design. And so we should expect more, even though they are younger and don't have a whole lot of experience yet. So all of that is to say, I remain incredibly bullish. It's not a quiet confidence um, uh, or a cautious optimism. It's just a real excitement about what they can possibly do. And to your point, after the incredible failure of not qualifying, and I think they have harnessed that opportunity and that responsibility and really have some ownership of it and want to kind of set it right this World Cup. Check the box of getting back to the World Cup. We've been to the World Cup many times from a men's perspective. We've been to the World Cup and we've done a, a lot more with a lot less and, yep. and in a lot tougher group. So, I mean, everything is still on the table. Uh, I've come across a bunch of your, um, your social media videos previewing different teams in the World Cup. Um, it looks like you've done just about all of them. Whenever you're evaluating teams that are competing in the World Cup, what are some of the things that you look for? And I'm asking you this question because I know that whenever we look at our own squad, that we have so many just emotions and biases and things that we build up that kind of colors our view of our own national team. But whenever we look at other teams, we're able to see it with, with a lot clearer view. Uh, so what I'm, what I'm ultimately getting at is trying to 
use your uh, specifications on how you view other national teams by looking at our own national team. So how do you how do you look at other national teams? Football is back and Bet Online remains your number one source for all your football betting needs this season. You'll find the latest odds, matchup info, player news, and game trends. And as your continued source for all wagering info, Bet Online features live betting, free contests, live scores, and giveaways all season long. Always the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports and events like MLB, MMA, tennis, boxing, and even golf. Head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code BELIEVE to receive your rewards. Bet online where the game starts. Well, look, obviously there's 32 teams and it's it's next to impossible for anyone human and to dispel any myths, I am human, to know everything about the teams. But what you're trying to do, at least what I try to do, is to understand the context behind why this team is here and what they can do. You know, the hardest part, I think, for, for any broadcaster in a World Cup is the first week and let's say the first round of games once the games start then you actually have you know context as to what happened in the previous game and then it's good bad changes that are going to be made stylistically you know you've you you've seen them and it's not that you haven't seen them in the past but it's a very different thing when you land at a world cup different circumstances um in a neutral type of situation and so that's really where you have to evaluate but it doesn't mean you can't bring and incorporate in context now you and i and and many that have followed the u.s national team for so long we have incredible depth and context when it comes to these teams you know my job is to make sure that all of those teams and there's 32 teams obviously some are much better known than others uh i i have context and i have an understanding as to what i think personally looking at this team but also what you know the, the the country thinks and what the general philosophy is and you know what the narratives are going on because you know all the drama and the debate that we are having ab- about our men's national team that's being done 31 other places with their teams and they're looking at the groups and they're saying what's the pathway out and hey you remember 2 years ago when you, you know what hit the fan and all this kind of stuff and that's all that's all part of it obviously from a fox perspective we will be focused and rightly so on our US team but we also have a responsibility for all the other 31 teams because in general we would, but in particular because we are broadcasting to a United States of America that is incredibly diverse and has so many different affiliations and connections with teams out there. And yes, the, the majority will be watching for this U.S. men's team, but there's a lot of people also that will be watching for all these other teams. There, there's there's a few factors that people always mention whenever talking about um, evaluating teams. And I want to throw a couple at you because you've okay. been on some of these teams. So um, I'm curious about, uh, first of all, outside pressure. Um, it seems like there's going to be two teams or there's going to be a bunch of teams, but two teams in particular that I'm aware of that are coming in with, with a lot going on in their country. Uh, one of them is Brazil with the recent presidential election. And it seems like there's players that are representative of different parties and there's a split there. Uh, and then Iran with everything going on over there. And that's super relevant to the national team. Uh, how much of those things affect the locker room and ultimately affect what we see on the field? Yeah, I mean, look, we, we know that sports and certainly soccer, because of its international aspect, um, is a reflection of culture and society, um, either in the moment or the history that we have. And so, you know, a U.S. Uh, a U.S. Mexico game, a U.S. Iran game, a U.S. England game, 
um, and plenty of other stories off the field will be part of you know the the narrative out there when we're talking about uh, these teams. Um, you know, I, I remember back in '98 when the United States played Iran in group play uh, in the World Cup, and it's really interesting because I think back to that game, and one of the things that I don't think we, as the U.S. team, it was it was obviously a failure of a tournament and a complete fiasco, but that particular game, I don't think we acknowledged and I think recognized how much more of a game that was. It wasn't just a game of soccer to the Iranians. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think you, you try to alleviate pressure. You know, if you're Brazil, you're always going to be under pressure. Um, you try to alleviate pressure to the extent that you can. But there's also an element of, of embracing it and harnessing it and using it and making sure that it informs the way that you go out there on the field. And for example, that game, as I said, I think we tried so hard to put, a, put away what we thought were going to be distractions because of the history that we have with Iran, and it's more than a game and all that kind of stuff, that we didn't rise to the moment. And so I think Greg Berhalter, the coach of the U.S., is going to be in this interesting position where a game against Iran – where from a practical perspective, we're going to need points, but also it is bigger than the actual game of soccer because, again, it's going to be a reflection of these two countries that have a long history of, let's be honest, not seeing eye to eye. And it continues on to this day and what's going on in Iran right now and all those different things, you know, the social aspects of it. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. I can't predict how it's going to play out either for Iran or, you know, protests or anything else out there that's going to go on that's part of the fun is we're going to have to bob and weave and adjust as the uh as the tournament uh goes on but it is it is much more than a game of soccer even when that whistle blows you mentioned greg berhalter you mentioned the 1998 world cup it kind of sets me up for for my next question uh coaching is another factor that everybody talks about whenever heading into a world cup if you look on u.s soccer twitter right now uh, the majority of tweets are going to be about uh, Greg Berhalter and, and people's confidence in him. I'm curious about the impact of coaching on a, on a national team. Uh, I think whenever you look back uh, historically, there's, there's mixed results. I mean, uh, Steve Sampson in, in 98 is always uh, maligned for that team's performance, but he was also the coach in 95 at the Copa America whenever uh, you guys went out there and had one of the great performances in U.S. soccer history in, in South America. Uh, you look at Bruce Arena, who was the coach in 2002, who uh, led the team to the quarterfinals, but he was also the coach in uh, 2018 that failed to qualify for the World Cup. And if you start looking around the world in, in soccer, you can find a lot of these coaches that had good World Cups and then really bad World Cups. Uh, so I, 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 what I'm getting at is, is how important is coaching? How, is, is, are there great coaches that can elevate a team consistently, or is, is this just kind of uh, – uh, I guess the variance of soccer. <laughs> uh, there are great coaches. Um, you know, when it comes to Greg Berhalter, I think he'd be the first person to tell you that whether it's fair or not, the reality is that he's going to be judged on the World Cup. And you know, to your point, there is a whole cycle of work and some of it very, very good. And some of it that we might not even understand fully the ramifications or the, you know, the, the positive impact until maybe the next cycle or what, even possibly till he's gone. Uh, but that's not anything that is new in soccer and in life for that matter. Uh, when it comes to a coach of a national team, ultimately, if you're going to the World Cup, that's where you are going to be judged on. And, you know, you, you talked about it earlier. 
you know, getting to a World Cup is is not anything new for the U.S. men's national team. Getting out of a group isn't even uh, something that's new for the U.S. national team, and we should expect that uh, that to happen. But you know, when when you talk about coaching, you know, it gets into. I, I was thinking about this yesterday about our game, and look, I, I know we are we love to talk and try to assign reason and sanity and clarity to uh, yeah. a game like soccer. And it's it's an ongoing process and it can be <laughs> incredibly frustrating, as you know, and debilitating because, you know, the soccer gods have a, a cruel sense of humor. And just when you think you've got the formula figured out, whether you're a, you know, a fan or if you're in media or if you're a player or more importantly, like what we're talking about here, a coach, just when you think you got it figured out, it throws something different and it goes completely against the tide. And that, that I'm sure for a coach can be incredibly frustrating. It's not an excuse. Uh, you know, Greg Berhalter has done some really, really interesting things over the cycle relative to how this team plays. And yes, I do think he has changed and he has gotten more pragmatic and realistic as opposed to his much more romantic notions at the beginning of the cycle with what the team is now. But it still plays the game in a very different way than even the previous cycle and certainly back in, in my generation. And I'm really interested to see now at the most important moment in the World Cup, in, in a neutral setting, if he sticks to his guns or if he betrays his ethos and his philosophy in an effort just to win. Because you, you as well as I know that ultimately, from a U.S. perspective, maybe more so than, than others, nobody cares how we win in the World Cup. They just care that we win. You lead me directly into my next question. I mean, uh, you got the chance to interview Greg Berhalter at the beginning of his tenure or early on in his tenure. And then uh, you recently got to interview him after the summer. And at the beginning of the tenure, there were a lot of questions about um, his his ideology and, and whether he would choose pragmatism over his system at any point. And then in the summer, after the summer friendlies, which went pretty well for the U.S., uh, it was almost like a victory tour for Greg Berhalter, where he did a bunch of media and uh, people were getting excited for the team. And, and it seemed like we had uh, gotten a Greg Berhalter that had uh, wisened up and matured a little bit and accepted pragmatism a little bit more and got away from his uh, from his ideology of uh, of possession soccer and beautiful soccer and right. whatever else he, he wanted to do. And then we get the two friendlies in September where <laughs> it seems like we go right back to 2019. Um, I remember he did an interview with Hercules Gomez where Herc asked him, you know, what was the strength of this national team? What are teams in Qatar going to have to be worried about when they play the U.S.? And he said the press. The press is going to be suffocating. The press this, the press that. We're going to be pressing teams so much. We play Saudi Arabia. We play Japan. We don't press. We sit in a mid block. We possess the ball. What happened there? How, as, a, as a U.S. men's national team fan, how do we deal with that? Is that a preview of what we're going to see in Qatar? Or are we more likely to see what we saw in the summer against Uruguay and Morocco? Yeah, I mean, look, a, a lot has been made about those two games. And, and I think that's fair. Uh, and I think Greg Berhalter would be the first person to tell you that that's not a good look. Um, you know, the, uh, the conspiracy theorist in me would say, uh, you know, maybe he's sandbagging. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's, not, that's not what's happening. Um, it, was, it was a bad couple of games. And it was a, a really strange head-scratching type of situation to put this team in. I mean, we got... You know, Mexico, which isn't necessarily playing great, but 
you know, they had two send-off games. They're selling out the Rose Bowl and selling out Levi Stadium. And, you know, we're over in Europe playing not European teams in these, you know, um, sterile, empty, bubble type of, you know, throwback to pandemic environments in not great fields. Uh, and not, none of that is to excuse the the performance, but it was just a strange look. And then it was compounded by the fact that the team didn't even remotely play well. Uh, I don't think that that is indicative of what this team is. Uh, and that specific group of players, and we know they were missing some, put them into a different type of environment. And I absolutely believe that they could play a whole lot better. Um, you, you know, you mentioned Greg Berhalter. If you think back to when he was at his most romantic self at the very beginning kind of of the cycle. And, you know, we got our ass kicked by Mexico and that's obviously never good. And it still he, hurts to think about that game. Alexi. Right. All right. But, but he came out after the game and I think a lot of us were kind of incredulous that he didn't, he didn't fathom or recognize that, Hey, this is Mexico and we can't afford to lose them even in an effort to progress by doing things that we know are going to fail. And his point was, this is the only moment that I can have where I can actually have them do something. And even with the risk of failure, that's the only way that they are going to be, get, uh, be getting better. And I don't think if he if you talk to him, he would, I think, acknowledge that he didn't recognize that that was maybe a bridge too far <laughs> and a bit and a bit too romantic. And yes, I think he has changed as players change and people change. He has changed over the cycle. But I don't think that he has completely abandoned or betrayed the way that he wants to play. And there will be moments where you and I are going to be on the end. And a lot of people are going to be on the edge of our seat going, all it takes is just a, you know, a whisper of wind and it hits off somebody's knee or it bounces up in an irregular type of moment playing out of the back. I mean, the stuff that players and teams do, I'm incredibly jealous because back in my day, you would you would be taken off the field and probably taken off of the team if you chose to do some of the things that players regularly choose to do because of the coaches is, is, is having them do that in, in today's game. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, it, it would be incredibly freeing to have that that ability, belief, freedom, confidence and support from the side to be able to play those balls out of the back and then let the chips fall where they may. Um, I just hope that in in Qatar, those chips don't fall on the side of all it takes is one pinched ball in a really good area as the U.S. is trying to play romantic soccer out of the back and we have a problem. Uh, I do think that we're going to press. I do think it, it depends on who we are playing. So game states and all that kind of stuff. But I do think that it's going to be this this mix of of the the romantic Greg Burhalter and the pragmatic uh, Greg Burhalter kind of <laughs> coming together and creating this, this ultimate form. Yeah. I know. I know everybody loves hearing about the romantic Greg Burhalter. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. I, you mentioned earlier uh, that we are not uh, gods of soccer. Well, I want to put you in the position of a God of soccer. I want to okay. play a what if game for the U S okay. men's national team. I'm going to present you four scenarios uh, of what could have happened during World Cup qualifying. So this mm -hmm. is you get this for the whole cycle, and I want you okay. to pick one scenario which you think which ha would have the biggest impact on the group, okay? okay? Okay. So the first scenario is we get 2018 Josie Altidore during the entire cycle. He is in form. He is not injured. 
He is playing at that same level. He's going to be that leader of a striker, the main goal scorer for the team heading to Qatar. So that's number one. So it alleviates all of the angst, um, you know, whether it's social media angst or just general angst out there about not having a true number nine that has stepped up. And, and to your point, nobody has stepped up since Josie Altador. We don't have a Josie Altador. We don't have a Brian McBride. We just don't have those players that I, I'm not ta- I'm not saying that they are Zlatan. OK, but I'm saying that if I'm pl- on the opposition I am having to game plan for them. I am having to worry at all times about where they are. And we just don't have that at this point. And it's not to say that Jesus or PFOC or Sargent or anybody else out there or Pepe can't score goals, but they don't put the fear of God into me or any team. Let's be honest right now. Now, hopefully they do at some point and they, and they come good. Uh, so that, that's one, one thing uh, that it would do. Uh, the other thing that it would do, I think, would free up all of this other talent that we have because of the attention that somebody like a Josie would take. Yeah. Then it relieves some of the pressure off of Christian and if it's way out there and others out there to have more space and more time and more confidence that if and when they get in those positions, especially out wide, that there is somebody that is going to be on the end of it that they can count on. I mean, Way back before you were born, when I was playing uh, for the Los Angeles Galaxy, we had a guy uh, by the name of Carlos Ruiz. And this guy was a scoring machine. That's all he did, all right? Uh, And I knew when I walked on the field that for all intents and purposes, we were up one nothing. The value to being able to say that cannot be overstated, okay? Because I knew as a defender, all I have to do is keep a clean sheet and play a good game in the back. and that guy is going to find a way to put the ball on the back of the net. And I don't think now collectively we have either from the outside or even from the inside, everybody saying, don't worry, that guy up there is going to score a goal. And so if I do my job and do it correctly, eventually he's going to do what he's, <laughs> what he's there to do and what he does so well. And so that's a, you know, that's a long answer to your question. Um, and obviously it didn't happen. And so now we're, you know, by committee. Well, that's scenario one. Let me give you scenario two. I've got four scenarios for you. So number two, Darlington Nagby accepts a call up to the national team. He is a midfielder throughout the cycle. And I think most importantly, in those early games in in World Cup qualifying, before Musa came on board, even whenever uh, Weston McKinney was suspended for the Canada game, we were playing... uh, uh, Sebastian Legette and um, Kellen Acosta as our dual eights. Those didn't work very well. We could have Darlington Nagby in that position. Uh, Darlington Nagby as a U.S. Men's National Team midfielder throughout the 2022 World Cup cycle. So that affirms and gives opportunity um, for the romantic Greg Berhalter that we have talked about to actually play the ideal way that he wants to play. And, you know, that. <laughs> Darlington Nagme, for whatever personal reasons, didn't want to do it, means that Greg Berhalter can't play that way. Because Darlington Nagby, we know, uh, he's not a perfect player. But as far as I'm concerned, he is arguably, you know, the greatest possession player uh, from a U.S. perspective that we have had in history. Um, he does not lose the ball, okay? Doesn't score a lot of goals, doesn't necessarily, you know, create in the advanced positions. But if you're deciding, hey, we're going to play out of the back and we are going to play in risky types of situations because we believe that there is an ultimate benefit, then you're damn sure better have a, a person that isn't phased by pressure of multiple players, 
that can get out of that pressure and or get fouled in the process, um, but does not turn over the ball when that pressure comes. And there is nobody better that I have seen in doing that. It would be interesting had that happened, what that three in the middle <clears throat> ultimately would have been, because you know now it's in pen basically with yeah. uh, with Weston, Tyler, and uh, uh, and Musa right now. So it would just have provided a completely different look, and it would have given Greg Berhalter the aha moment that he kind of has always been searching for, but I think has come to the realization just does not happen. Yeah, I think MMA ultimately wins out, but man, there there were some results early on in World Cup qualifying. I mean, you look at the first two windows where if we get an extra point here or there, then all of a sudden at the end, I mean, we're looking way different. Let me present yep. scenario number three okay. is Miles Robinson never gets injured. We have Miles <sighs> Robinson throughout World Cup qualifying. Yeah, I mean, I think we have, it's hard, but we've kind of moved on, but it doesn't lessen the pain because that <laughs> tandem I think I, I think you and I and, and and so many others out there, and rightfully so, we should be we should have we were very excited to see that because it was a yin and yang with with Walker Zimmerman and they yeah. both complemented each other really really well and whatever deficiencies the others had, um, you know they kind of made up for it and they had developed a, a you know a, a an understanding and a partnership and you know the the cruelest of fates for a young player getting his possible you know. Um, first and who knows only because you never you're not promised any more uh, World Cup. So yeah, I, I think it's it, it's not over in that he will be back and we'll see what he looks like ultimately after this injury. But it's a real shame uh, and a devastating loss at a position that now is you know let's be honest uh, up for grabs and yeah. a constant source of debate. So had that happened, I don't think anybody would be talking in the way that we are talking right now of the center back position and that that void right now. I don't think, you know, the the screaming and yelling for Tim Ream would be at such a fever pitch as it is right now uh, if uh, if Robinson had continued on, because I think everybody recognized that, you know, he was the real deal and he still may be in the future. Yeah. Uh, last scenario. And then after this, you can pick which one you think would be uh, you would take at, okay. for the 2022 cycle. Tata Martino becomes the U.S. Men's National Team head coach in 2019. Yeah, I don't think it changes. Well, I mean, he he is obviously a very different type of coach. Um, I think the relationship between Greg Berhalter and his players right now, it, it would be very different, the type of relationship that he has, that he would have had with the players. I also don't think that he would have leaned into the youth and the experimentation that Greg Berhalter did. So I, I am actually of the opinion that I don't, I don't think that it would have been uh, better. As a matter of fact, I can make an argument that it would have been worse and that Greg Berhalter, while he's not perfect and certainly has you know, faults, um, was to a certain extent the right guy for what he wanted to do. And I think what you know, Ernie Stewart and ultimately Brian McBride and, and the Federation kind of wanted to do with that step back of the failure of, of 2018 to go two steps forward. So what would you choose right now? Do you want prime Josie Altador? Do you want Darlington Nagby? Or do you want uh, Miles Robinson? Since I don't think that we are yet at the point where we can rely on 
the attacking part of the game, I would rather bolster the defensive ranks. And I would rather, I think if I had to pick, it would be uh, Miles. Uh, because I think we will find a way. And, you know, we've talked about it, how there, there is a history of teams, you know, out kicking their coverage and doing all that kind of stuff and punching above their weight, whatever phrase you want to use, of American teams doing that. And so I think that will, that's a trait that I don't think goes away. But being able to defend consistently and give this, you know, the rest of the team the opportunity to have that moment of magic, I think that outweighs having a Josie Altidore because, you know, if we're not able to shut up shop in the back, it doesn't matter who we have. We could have Zlatan or, or, or anybody else up there and they'd just be on an island and not getting the opportunity. So I think, you know, that's the defender in me, maybe. Um, and, you know, with, uh, with the playing out of the back and doing all those different things, I just, I, I, I want to be secure defensively first and foremost going into World Cup because that gives us the best chance of success, okay? Having great goal scorers is fine and well, and obviously is a necessity. You can't win the game unless you score. But, you know, ultimately, I think the best chance for success for the U.S. is to make sure that we are solid defensively and don't take any unnecessary hits out there when it comes to uh, the defensive play. And then rely on the talent that we, that we do have with the understanding that, you know, it's not what we want from a number nine position right now, but, you know, people surprise us. And the World Cup, as you know, throws incredible, magical types of situations that we can't even fathom at this point. And a few weeks from now, you know, we could be talking and someone will have emerged that while we know, we never envision them in this type of framing. And that's what the beauty and the gold uh, part of the World Cup does and the power of the World Cup does. And by the way, guys, I want if you're watching this right now, I want you in the comment section to let me know what you would choose. Would you choose Josie? Would you choose Darlington? Would you choose um, uh, Miles Robinson or would you choose Tata Martino? It's it's funny that you mentioned like the magic of the World Cup, because I, I was reflecting on this the other day, that the expectation for the U.S. men's national team now, because of what your teams did and because of what happened in 02 and 2010 and 2014, is that we're supposed to punch above our weight that the expectation for the U.S. men's national team manager and the players is to go above and beyond even what you're, you're capable of doing. That's sort of what we expect from our national teams. And that, that's a little, I guess, unfair, but it is, you know, it is what it is. It's, it's I don't the think job. It's, you think it's unfair? I, I, look, I think, I think there's a real danger. And look, you know, when we, when we head over there and, and I'm screaming and yelling on Fox and, and we're having a wonderful time there in, in Doha, you know, peek behind the curtain. I, I am going into it uh, and you will probably hear me at different times say this on air, where I don't want to dumb it down. I don't want to let these this group of players and this generation off the hook. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a I, I see it kind of being created right now where we are lessening our expectations of them. And I don't think that's fair. We can't have it both ways. All right. You, you and I have been around for a little bit. I've been around for a long time. I have heard constantly how oh, we we don't have the country and the culture and the history and we're not, uh, you know, we're, we're not cultivating these types of players in the proper type of environment. And yet 
when we actually go and do it and the proper type of environment relative to what people are talking about is from a very young age, having them soccer specific and having them train every single day and having them now bypass the college route and having them in academies and having them even their education at a young age is part of their curriculum as a soccer, as a developing soccer player. And they are literally being trained to be these professional players at a much younger age than I or my generation or even following generations ever were. You can't have it both ways where we do that now. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to uh, devalue or um, have less expectations on there. No, there should be more expectations because now we have given them the tools that previous generations didn't have. We've given them the pathways that previous generations didn't have. So I am of the belief that we should absolutely expect more out of this generation and out of this team that is going to Qatar, even though, as we know, it is a young team. It is an inexperienced team. They have, I think, a, a, a youthful um, swagger that, if harnessed correct, correctly, can really happen. You, you know, I both know young people do dumb things. They will do dumb things at a certain point, either collectively or individually. Uh, unless DeAndre Yedlin starts, there's not going to be a single player in that starting 11 against Wales in that first game that is played in a World Cup. OK, the sooner they figure out that it's the same game I've been playing since I was a kid and I was brought into that bubble and that cocoon, that warmth of that cocoon. But, you know, again, I just think that I feel like it's being set up to give them an out and to give them an excuse because they're young, because they're inexperienced, because maybe more importantly, everybody is kind of extrapolating it out and pushing it forward to 26. And I think that's dangerous because whatever success we have in 26, I think is going to be predicated on the success that we have in 22. Maybe, maybe. I mean, uh, 1990 was pretty terrible, but you yep. know, in 1994, that that was a lot better. Yep. Um, so there's that. Um, I, I, I don't think that the, uh, the, history or culture or any of that stuff matters I, I think it's all about how good are the players when they step on the field and that's been my question about this national team is you know at the beginning of the cycle we put all these expectations on these players to be at a certain level and I wonder if we're still holding them to those expectations even though I don't know if they've reached uh, those levels as players uh, some of them are um, a little bit lower than where we thought they would be right now. Some of them have been dealing with long-term injuries. I, you know, we, we, there's, there's been moments where some of these players have looked tremendous and we're sort of holding them to those expectations, even though that's not representative of where they've always been at play, as players. I, I, I kind of question that, but I still believe, uh, especially considering the competition that we're going up against, if we're holding the competition to the same scrutiny that we're holding our own national team to, I definitely think this team can get out of the group and then, from there, all bets are off. Yeah, I mean, the group dynamic is fascinating, right? Because let's be honest, uh, from a U.S. perspective, we look at Iran and Wales. Those are games we can win and that we should win. OK, I think that we are better than both of those teams. It's not that we can't lose. The interesting thing is both Iran and Wales are looking at those other two, including yeah. us as the same in the same way. Those are the teams that we should be, right? And then everybody takes takes their chances against England. That first game against Wales is huge. And I don't want to necessarily put all eggs in that basket, but let's be honest. If you come out of that first game with 3 points, then you are sitting pretty going into that second game against England. And the pressure is completely off. It's always going going to be on England, but it's completely off the US. They can play that wonderful comfortable role of being the underdog against England, which, as you know, we have a, a very good history in the World Cup uh, uh, in terms of, of the results. The problem is 
if you have a stinker in that first game against Wales, now the pressure pressure just gets ratcheted up against England because you've got to find a way to get points in that second game. So um, I think it's coming out of the shoot in a positive manner against uh, Wales is just is just huge. And then, you know, obviously that third game uh, against Iran, again, those are the two games that we should find a way. And that's why I hearkened back to 1998. And I hope that and I'm, I'm sure that Greg Verhalter will, you know, have researched and understood you know, part of the mistakes that we made, we made a lot of mistakes in the whole tournament. Like I said, mm-hmm. that particular game in terms of our, in terms of our approach. Yeah. It's, it's going to be fascinating with the way that it's set up with, with how Greg um, handles it uh, from a player perspective, you know, is, is he going to go all in on the Wales game and the Iran game and kind of see what happens against England? Or is he going all in against England? You know, it, it reminds me of the, uh, last cycle where we had Mexico in the middle and everybody was questioning how Greg was going to set up. Was he going to bring the A team against Mexico or go all out against Costa Rica, you know, depending on how things anyway, it's going to be very interesting. Uh, You mentioned the striker situation. Uh, Do you have a favorite striker right now? I I know that I'm using the the, the phrase right right now because it seems to change week over week. Uh, Who do you think is going to line up for the bulk of the minutes as striker in Qatar? It's amazing, right? I mean, the, the this this discourse and discussion about the striker and, you know, PFOC hasn't scored in eight weeks and now, you know, he's off the train tracks and then Pepe's, you know, was was on the train and then off the train and then the train went up to up to up to Holland and, you know, but yeah, but what's the level that he's scoring and all like you know, I think it's ultimately going to be Jesus. And is is that great? Not necessarily. But I do think that, you know, we are a little disrespectful of what Jesus is um, and maybe we're not giving him the benefit of the doubt because he doesn't play it in the traditional way, but it also affords him and the team to do some different things. And obviously to, you know, make runs that, you know, we were talking earlier about Josie Altador that Josie Altador wouldn't nor and couldn't make. And so maybe it do, in a strange way, you know, he, he finds that world cup, um, light that shines upon him in the most important moment. Uh, you know, so, so I, I think the question will be, and, you know, we're recording this on uh, what, November 3rd. So Thursday. So we're days away on the ninth. Greg Berhalter will announce his 26. The question will be, does he take four or three up top? Um, you know, I think my three would be Jesus Ferreira, uh, Josh Sargent, and probably Jordan Pifak. Uh, I'm really disappointed that uh, Reno Vasquez was not part of it. I, I think it's strange. I don't understand why, at the very least, you didn't take a look at him, given what he does and given the different look that he has. But I know Greg is big on players that have been there in the cycle, and so I can at least understand that part of it, although I definitely would have brought him in. So without that, then Pifak's the next best thing um, and the only thing that's been in camp. So that leaves Pepe out of of, of the situation. I just don't think that Pepe, regardless of what he is doing right now is, is the answer right now. He might be going forward in, uh, in the future, but if I can only take three, those are the three that I'm taking. Um, I don't know who you're taking or, or who your uh, listeners and viewers are taking out there, but that's, if you can only take three of, of the four that we just mentioned, um, I guess, which, which three are you taking? Well, I, I did a, uh, a World Cup roster prediction video a couple of weeks ago, and those were the three I had. I had okay. Sargent, I had Ferreira, and I had Pifak. Uh It seems like after the September window that Greg really likes Pepe, and Pepe might play a bigger role than anybody's expecting him to. 
right now. And at, at least right now, he's he's got to Groningen and he's back to scoring goals. And he's uh, seems to be that peppy that we saw at FC Dallas. So uh, I've gotten to a point right now where I'm pretty content with anybody um, who, who gets there. I, I would love, as a big fan of Jesus Ferreira, I would love to see him um, kind of prove all the doubters wrong oh, and, and finally get it. that goal in the World Cup and show what he can do. Uh, I think the discourse around him has been so silly. I mean... Every time you say that a, a player cannot be X because he doesn't have this trait or he doesn't do this or whatever, there's a player that you can show that's been one of the greatest players of all time that matches that description. You know, it's, there, there's just no one way to play soccer. You can be great doing so many different things. Uh, but I, I, I don't want to go on a, a Ferrera no, rant. But no, I, no, I love it. I point. love it. I love it. And I, and I would, like you, I would love nothing more than if he just shoves it in the face <laughs> of everybody and says, you know, up yours and you doubted me all along and i hope i you know look i don't know if he reads any of this stuff or sees any of this stuff i hope they don't but you know if if in any way it motivates him that would be you know that would be really cool and, and look you know the world cup does strange things and i often say you know form is fallacy right so just be careful of automatically taking someone's form either good or bad where they are from a club perspective and then saying and mirroring that and say well this is what's going to happen or extrapolating it out and say if he's here if he's doing this here then think of what he will do with the national team i, I know there's a tendency to do that and i've i've been guilty of that too but sometimes it it doesn't work out like that when it comes mm -hmm. to the world cup with that change of scenery and obviously a change of personnel uh some players that are that are playing average or not even well or not even playing at all can star in the world cup and some players that are are playing really, really well, can suck it up at the World Cup. Obviously, all things being equal, you want your players playing, you want your players playing well, and you hedge your bets with that in terms of the, the World Cup. But strange, strange things happen in the World Cup. And the stars that we are talking about now might not star in the World Cup. And the ones that we aren't talking about may rise to the occasion. And look, you're talking to someone that's lived the power of what a World Cup can do to an individual. And when that World Cup power and light shines on you it can be intense and wonderful and warm and it can completely reframe the narrative and what people think about you oh yeah there's there's players who have made a uh, a lot of money by showing up big yeah. on the biggest stage and never yep. really being able to replicate that form once they got back to the club level but still kind of get big paychecks because of it because sure. of it you know sure. i don't want to name any names but i'm uh, sure you know look hamas hamas is still playing right i mean he's running around <laughs> That's, that's one of the ones I was thinking of, you know. Uh, uh, so I, I know that you're very active in social media and you're, you're constantly engaging with the fans. I'm sure that you've seen a lot of the uh, the discourse and the consternation and, and everything uh, regarding the team and, and regarding the World Cup. Is, is there one take that you're seeing a lot out there that uh, whenever you read it, you're just like, I can't believe people are thinking about this, either as a fan or as a former player or as a former administrator? I mean, all the jobs that you've done in American soccer. Uh, what, what is what is a take that you see and you're just like, I can't believe people are thinking this? I mean, I, I think, look, any coach is going to come in for criticism. And Greg Berhalter knew from the moment he took the job that that was going to happen. Uh, and whether it's Tata or anybody else, it comes with the territory and you have to have a, a thick skin. Uh, you know, I do think that some of the criticism of, of Greg is, is beyond the pale. Um, and I don't think is necessarily rooted in, <laughs> you know, any type of, of concrete 
um, analysis. And again, it's not that you, you, you or me can't criticize him. And I'm, I'm critical of different things that he does. But this, this, it's not even an undercurrent. Sometimes it's right there on the yeah. surface of um, he's not good enough and somebody else would have done better. So, so for the first criticism is he's just not good enough and he never uh, will be good enough. Then if and when he does something well, then it's, well, if somebody else was there, they would do even better and they would have it further, further along. And I, you know, I get it. There are people that like you and there are people that don't believe me. I, I know. And if you run around trying to please everybody, you find out very, very quickly that you please nobody at all. And I think Greg Berhalter is really interesting. You know, we were talking earlier about his his shift and his adjustment in philosophy and, and becoming a little bit more pragmatic. I also think that just as a person, he has changed. And we've even seen his personality kind of emerge more. I think he's much more comfortable in public because I think he's, you know, I think at some point he said, you know, screw him. You know, <laughs> people are going to say what they are going to say. And I do think that he is a true believer. And look, whether we agree with what he's doing or not, I would rather have somebody that I believe has a flawed plan than somebody who doesn't have a plan at all. And he absolutely has a plan. And he believes in it maybe more so than anybody. And that's a good thing, even if I don't agree with parts of it or all of it. If he doesn't believe in it, then why the hell should I or anybody that's playing for him believe in it? So, you know, that, but that, you know, that type of discourse happens. And we all know that, you know, I, I, I love Twitter and I use it for what it is, but I also have an understanding that, you know, I'm, that it's not a focus group and it is an echo chamber and it doesn't necessarily represent the way that everybody feels. And I know I have the tendency, we all have a tendency to, you know, see a tweet or see a, uh, you know, a vein of tweets and narratives that are out there and amplify it and apply it that this is what everybody thinks. And I can just tell you from a personal perspective that that's dangerous. And 99.9% of the time, it's completely false. So, so that's, you know, that's something in terms of the criticism. And again, I don't want blind faith uh, in, in a coach or anything like that. But I do want, you know, realistic uh, criticism as to, you know, just because he didn't bring Tim Ream, okay, or doesn't bring Tim Ream. And who knows, he might bring Tim Ream in a, in a couple of days. We'll, we'll, we'll find out. That's fine, but it doesn't make him the Antichrist. Yeah, the, the coaching discourse is is just so weird to me. Like you you mentioned earlier, and I, I completely agree that Greg will be judged based on how he does yeah. in the World Cup, as does every coach for the national team. But is that fair? I, I know I keep using the word fair, and you don't like that mm -hmm. word, but you know, like if a coach does well, if the team does well, the coach is good. If the team does bad, the coach is bad. It, it does that work out in the long run. I mean, if you look at like Thomas Tuchel's tenure with Chelsea, he arrives at Chelsea, uh, takes over Frank, Frank Lampard's team that wasn't doing well, brings them to the champions league a few years, years later, they're really struggling to score goals and they're kind of falling apart. Like did Thomas Tuchel forget how to coach in, in, in a few years or, or is there other variables going on? Yeah. I mean, you could present that all over the place. Yeah. So like, I got a comment recently, I think it was yesterday, where someone said, um, I, I'm kind of hoping the U.S. doesn't get out of the group because then that would mean that Greg Berhalter would remain as coach of the national team. And I, I was just, I can't, I'm so disappointed. Right. No, I get it. Listen, I'm so, I'm so glad you brought that up because the, 
this is part of what I can't understand. You know, I've had coaches that I liked, that I disliked or anything like that. And I know I, I get it. I'm human. Okay. And we want to be validated. We want to have our opinions validated and our opinions justified. And oftentimes the only way for that to happen is for what we are predicting in terms of the, the, the failure to actually happen. And so I, I get that human part of either you know, very publicly or very pri privately wanting your, um, you know, this is the end of the world type of prognostication to happen. I, I, I understand that. But I do think that there, and, and whenever I accuse somebody of, of doing that, they immediately come back and say, no, 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 I want them to win. I just, I think that they could do better if whatever. So, so for a lot of people, unless and until he wins the World Cup, I guess, there's always an ability for him, uh, you know, to ultimately do better. But, you know, it's, um, you know, it's Janet Jackson, right? You know, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, what have you done for me lately, right? I mean, we've seen so. coaches win the World Cup and, and have terrible World Cups the following World Cup. We well, so, so this is, yeah, but this is where it gets interesting because I think no matter what happens, whether Greg Berhalter bombs out in the World Cup in spectacular failure, wins the World Cup or comes somewhere in between, I don't believe in multiple cycles. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, you know, from a Greg Berhalter perspective and anybody, let's be honest, the real carrot out there is 26 to mm -hmm. be the coach of 26. You don't have qualifying to go through. Obviously you're hosting it in the U S and I think that there's going to be a lot of suitors. Um, and, and, and Greg Berhalter, I don't know what the philosophy is going forward when it comes to what they want to do and what, what justifies or gets him that second cycle. But as I've said, I, I think you are a caretaker. And I think no matter what, at the end of December, he can pass it on, if that's what happens, in good shape. And that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the, with the World Cup results, but in good shape for whoever takes it on to 26. Now, he's going to want to take it on to 20, 26. But yeah. you and I both know that the dynamic of a coach and this incredibly young, talented group changes dramatically i mean weston mckinney is a very different player but more importantly he's a very different person as is christian pulisic and others out there than they were when greg berhalter first got a hold of yeah. these, these guys and so sometimes it doesn't work from a dynamic where now they are much further along in their career they're more mature they're more let's be honest they're men now as opposed to some of them that were <laughs> kind of teenagers and, and boys if you will starting up and so i think it's it's dangerous to just assume that he can continue the process for uh, another cycle. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't like multi-cycle coaches. I, I think you just need to get a new voice in the room every now and then. And I think we see that like that's one of the reasons why I think going back to Thomas Tuchel, well, all of a sudden, Grant Potter comes in running largely the same system, playing more or less yep. the same players. They're getting different results. And I think it's just because it's a it's a human thing. It's having a different dude in the room. Um, I, I do agree that I think we should have a, a new coach on uh, for the next cycle. What I disagree with is that there's some savior coach out there that's mm. going to elevate this squad. Uh, to levels beyond what it deserves uh, based on the talent that it has. You know, I, I, I do believe that if we had Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp or, you know, whoever you want, Bill Belichick as the coach for the 2022 cycle, uh, that this team right now would be as it is right now, a, a team hoping to get to the round of 16. I don't think there's any coach that would elevate us to a quarterfinal hopeful team. I mean, outside of getting there through just happenstance, you know. I, right. I, 
Well, it's well, the players that you have. And, and to your point, when we're talking about, you know, people that want this team to fail, again, it's human, but I, I just want you to be honest, okay? <laughs> if, if, because don't just think that behind the scenes, all right? If you really want that to happen, then, you know, put it out there that that's yeah. what you want to happen to justify your opinion. And a lot of times when, you, when people have a problem with Greg Berhalter, you know, I'll ask them, okay, name me a coach, okay, that you think would do better, all right? And it has to be American. And very, very quickly, uh, the list gets very, very short for a lot of people out there. And so, again, you know, look, we have had domestic coaches from a national team perspective. We've had forum coaches. We've had different levels of, of success out there when it, when it comes to that. But there also seems to be this thought that the American coaches, and Greg is of the American coaching tree, they don't have you know, the prerequisite type of understanding of the game and certainly the background or the CV that mm -hmm. many that many people want. And again, it, it goes back to, you know, the insecurity and the inferiority complex that we have that we have out there. So if Greg, you know, if uh, if Greg Berhalter is gone here in a few weeks, let's be honest, um, and there is that opening, it's going to be cherry. It's going to be a lot of people are going to want it and a lot of people are going to come running for it. Uh, and if, you know, Ernie Stewart and uh, Brian McBride are fielding interviews. It'd be fascinating to see who it is ultimately that is part of that interview process, and then ultimately who uh, who they pick. And do they go, you know, someone that doesn't have connections to the U.S. Uh, going forward into a U.S. World Cup in 26, um, or do they go with someone? I mean, look, we we got MLS Cup on Fox this weekend, and you know, we're getting ready for you know two coaches that I think are absolutely going to be in the talk and in the running when it comes to positions, whether it's club positions or even the national team position in Jim Curtin and Steve Terundle, very young, obviously, uh, and still relatively short uh, and small CV, but um, you know, a good coach is a good coach, regardless of where they, where they come from. And I think that's one of the things that MLS is doing that um, it is helping so much in the long run that we don't really think about in the short term is, is developing those great coaches that are, um, that are, uh, educating the the next wave of players and and i think it's just getting better and better man there's a lot of really young exciting coaches in the league right now i mean caleb porter just lost his job but there was a time when he was like the next exciting guy yep. i mean uh josh wolf over at austin is is an exciting guy um uh, nico estevez over in uh, fc dallas is, seems to be doing well with that squad it's it's, it's great i want to uh switch gears um of course, you're you're covering the national team, but you're covering the entire tournament. Uh, so, give me another team out there that you're just really excited to see what they can do in Qatar. I mean, okay, so you know, a quick overview in terms of what I think everybody that's listening and watching knows, but you know, for obvious reasons, what what is going on with Brazil and Argentina? They're always going to be there. Um, I have Brazil winning. Uh, my friend David Mossy, who I do the State of the Union podcast with, has Argentina winning and i don't think you can go wrong with either of those okay they are stocked when it comes to talent obviously we know the history when it comes to messi arguably the greatest player ever to play the game in probably what is going to be his final world cup they already checked the box of the copa america this is the most balanced argentina team that i have seen they don't simply defer to messi uh but they also recognize that he can do incredible things and moments of magic but there's so much other talent around him there's no drama behind the scenes which as you know is amazing when it comes to Argentina, considering their uh, history of drama 
We know that it's very, very difficult. It hasn't been done since back in the late 60s, early 70s of actually winning back-to-back World Cups. So if France, while they have restocked, and even with some injuries with Pogba and N'Golo Kante, um, I don't see them uh, doing it just because history has not been, uh, has not been kind. Um, you know, Belgium, this golden generation continues on. And unless they win a World Cup, they, I think, whether it's fair or not, will be looked at as being a failure as a uh, as a golden generation mm-hmm. um you know interesting thing from a u.s perspective obviously um the pathway to that round of 16 and then beyond as we know leads through group a and group a i, I love the netherlands um and while they have been bridesmaids now for a while it would not surprise me in the least if they find a good run and this pathway that they have that obviously leads through group b and maybe even through the U.S., depending on how people finish up and being picked for Netherlands in Group A, which we know is Qatar's group, um, the soccer gods did smile upon them. I love the Netherlands, uh, and they would be a good bet in terms of money because they have the ability. It's not a completely outlandish type of odds and bet out there, but it would still win you some some money out there. Um, And then, look, this is also probably Cristiano Ronaldo's last World Cup with a Portugal team that is. I think, you know, a very good team. I don't, not sure that it's a great team. And in the same way that Manchester United is trying to figure out how to play with or without Cristiano Ronaldo, Portugal will be faced with a situation of, you know, dare you say it is a dirty little secret that they may be better when he's not on the field and they have to adjust as any team does to what he is. I don't know. Or, or does he find a new life and new lease on life when he gets on that plane and maybe the same way that Christian Pulisic, when he gets on the plane could kind of just relax and exhale and be in a very, very different environment. And one that maybe brings out the best in him when it comes to uh, the world cup. So those are, you know, some of the things that we're looking at, you know, our friends down South in, in, in Mexico, I think they get out of the group. I think Tata Martino actually with all of the pressure that he is under, I think he finds a way actually to get them to the Quinto Partido, uh, uh, and actually bring them to that promised land, even though the expectations right now from El Tree fans are probably at its lowest that I've seen in a long time. And then, look, our our, our friends from Canada, you know, welcome back after, uh, you know, last time <laughs> in 1986. And your uh, your reward is you get to play against Belgium in the first game of the World Cup. So good luck with that. And and by the way, you'd be in a group with the uh, uh, the runners up when it comes to uh, Croatia. So not an easy draw for Canada, but a lot of people I was with some FIFA people the other day and they from afar have said that by far Canada is the team that excites them the most. So high expectations given what they did through the World Cup qualifying and the great talent that they have. But, you know, uh, the soccer gods sometimes in the World Cup look at (laughs) expectations and spit on them. I'm really excited for Canada as well. And a prediction of a quinto partido for Mexico, that would be absolutely something else. Last question, how's the U.S. going to do? I think we get out of the group. Uh, I think we beat uh, both uh, Wales and Iran. And I think we do well against England. I mean, look, I'm where, where we drop points. Yeah, yeah, look, I'll take a point against England. I know we've done well against England. It would warm the cockles of my red-headed American heart to beat England in anything, by the, by the way. And that would just be mwah, beautiful to be able to do that and rub it in their in their faces because they're insufferable. Let's be honest. They're more insufferable than the uh, the Seattle folks. Let's be honest. Um, Alexi, I did a video yesterday 
talking about all the reasons why England uh, does not live up to expectations in international tournaments. Yeah. And I also threw in there that the U.S. won the War of 1812. And some English guy came on. It was like, you did not win that war. <laughs> it was a treaty. <laughs> oh, God love him. God love him. I mean, we have so many connections and stuff like that. And, and you know, they're... You know they they get so bent out of shape of it all, and to to see them uh, to, to see the possibility of them melting down in a U.S. England game in a World Cup. I mean, just in general, them melting down is wonderful. But to see it come possibly at the hands of the U.S. Oh, it would be uh, it would be so good. Yeah, I mean, look, we we find a way out. I do think that that first game is is crucial, and I, I want three points in that first game. I know people will take a point and all that kind of stuff. I just don't want to go into that England game feeling under any more pressure than just a world cup provides so yeah we, we find a way out um so it's the u.s and england coming out there you go alexi lawless one of the most iconic names in american soccer history thank you so much for joining us guys thank you for watching if you haven't yet hit the subscribe button hit the like button my name is sam and this is the yank report brought to you by bet online thank you for listening to believe You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.